The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, remotely, as is always the case these days, our political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Pat. Hi, Hugh. And also our European correspondent, or our Europe correspondent, I should say, Naomi O'Leary. Naomi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to be on. I'll go to you first, because as we've had people on gradually over the last few weeks from around the town, around the country, and indeed around the world, uh, I'm asking them what they're uh, COVID-19 life is like. You're in Groningen in the Netherlands? Yep, that's right. So I, I don't know, how how does it compare to Ireland? My impression is that the lockdown is slightly less strict than in a lot of European countries. So schools are shut, most shops are shut, things like that. But there's a lot of people out and about. Like there's people cycling and walking in groups and um, you know, it's been really quite sunny for the last week or so. Um, and it's it would almost just look like a bit of a quiet Sunday rather than, you, you wouldn't really tell that there's a pandemic. Apparently 40% of people in the Netherlands are still going to work as, as normal. Um, and yeah, so although there is a lockdown, um, it's not it's not being enforced by police that I can see anyway. And also the kind of advice from the government has been, it's a case of personal responsibility, you know, for people to to take it into their, their own hands, I guess. It's ever so slightly disorientating because I'm aware that in other capitals... Um, and in other parts of Europe, it's a total lockdown, you know, and it's it's like a ghost town. No one can go out. I think in France, people can't even jog anymore, and you know, it keeps just getting stricter and stricter. And here, it's not it's not the it's not the same. Even though it's not like it's not like the pandemic has skipped over the Netherlands. It's very much here. Like about two o'clock every day, the public health agency, the RIVM, announces the latest deaths and. I just looked today and it's 115 deaths, which is really very high for um, a country of a population of about 17 million. 
And so is there any sense, and I know these figures are so difficult at the moment in terms of really getting a handle because the, the data the data can be problematic, but is there any sense in terms of either the deaths or the number of cases which have been diagnosed um, or the number of hospital beds that are being taken up of how the Netherlands is performing vis-a-vis other European countries? Um, I think the death rate is pretty high in terms of um, just per capita um, compared to the number of people who, who are in the Netherlands. Um, but from the outset here in the Netherlands, there has been um, an approach to the pandemic, which has been to kind of take it as a little bit as like something that happens in the course of life. Like, you know, old people die and, you know, kind of people with existing illnesses died. It it hasn't been seen as this sort of outright emergency as it has elsewhere. There's not that sense of fear, at least that I can see. Um, And there was also quite a lot of emphasis on kind of not shutting everything down, keeping normality going, keeping the economy going. Um, I was quite. They also went for the um, for a while. They promoted the herd immunity idea that the UK also toyed with. Um, so the head of the public health agency, the RIVM, went on television and said basically that it's kind of good for people to get it. Um, he he agreed that it was good for people who were strong to to get it with the idea that they would build up immunity and then ultimately if enough people were immune it would protect the vulnerable. But what this position doesn't take into account is that we don't actually have evidence that people do become immune to it and if so for how long they become immune. So it's not an, an approach that is soundly backed up by evidence yet anyway. And the other thing that it doesn't take account of, which is what caused the British government to change its position, was that if you just let it run through the population, you overwhelm your health service, you have no ICUs, you don't have sufficient numbers of ventilators, and therefore more people die than were than was necessary, if I can put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wonder, you know, I don't get the sense, though, that the uh, there's a big public backlash or anything like that. Um, so it's it's really interesting to see how numbers of deaths can be seen in a, in, in a different context. or Like, for example, in the UK, the UK daily death toll now is comparable to what it was in Italy at the height of Italy's crisis, but it's not being reported in the UK as the same level as emergency as it was in Italy, which is really strange. And it's sort of the same in the Netherlands. Although the numbers are really quite high, there's not a sense that, you know, it's a big emergency. There's not that sense of urgency. Now, Pat, to Ireland, I mean, um, you have a couple of interesting pieces over the last 24 hours on irishtimes.com. It seems to me that we're at a kind of inflection point where, on the one hand, um, these stricter legislation and regulations were formally introduced a couple of days ago by by Simon Harris, the Minister for Health. There's been a kind of countrywide attempt to stop people travelling too much over the bank holiday weekend. We're just about to see an announcement that the um, the uh, strict regulations will continue certainly for another two weeks at least. But there is increasing debate um, about the path out of this or what the what the first stage would be to, uh, to relax some of these uh, regulations and when that might fall. Yeah, so I think that's a conversation that is currently going on in government and there's a number of groups of officials that are working on how you might implement that staged relaxation from uh, of the 
very strict measures that are currently in place and as you say will be extended for at least another two weeks and probably ultimately until next month, until after May bank holiday weekend, which is sort of the the target for um uh, for the government to uh, the point the point at which it hopes that it will be able to begin a relaxation now that is dependent on a couple of things and people in government are very very wary about discussing this in any detail because they don't want any lessening of the current pretty general you know, ad- adherence uh, to the uh, uh, to the restrictions uh, to undermine the sort of progress that they 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 think that they've made thus far, and that the figures would tend uh, to bear out that they have made. So, um, if there is to be uh, a relaxation in May, that depends, I think, on. Uh, progress in a couple of areas. First of all, that the the numbers not of new diagnoses of the disease, uh, but admissions to hospitals and admissions to uh, ICUs, because uh, you know the to, to a certain extent the daily number of new cases, so it was five hundred yesterday, which is the highest ever, is a function of the number of tests you're doing. And if there is to be a relaxation, one thing that everybody tells me uh, within government is that uh, there will have to be a very significant ramping up of the capacity to test because if you're going to relax and some workplaces go back to work schools perhaps uh, and so forth over the co- over the uh, over the course of may you will have to be able to very quickly identify new outbreaks of uh, of the virus so you will have to have either same day or certainly next day uh, testing um, and uh, testing and, and, and results of uh, for for the virus and also a very rapid tracing operation. So I, I think what you will see going on over the next three weeks, as well as the uh, government urging people to maintain the current restrictions or maintain their observation of the current restrictions is um, uh, is is efforts to uh, increase the testing and the tracing capacity. Isn't it fair to say, though, Pat, that of the different, the various different elements in this huge challenge facing the government, things like getting enough uh, PPE, personal protective equipment in so that medical staff are adequately protected. There were some issues around that, but it seems to be going OK now. Uh, the, the the question of freeing up beds and freeing up critical care uh, facilities for people seems to have been addressed pretty efficiently. And for the moment, it's doing OK. The bit on which we've fallen over worst so far is the bit around testing, isn't it? Yeah, when you think of two weeks ago, the Taoiseach was saying, you know, that they hope to be able to do 15,000 tests uh, a day and we're clearly a long, long way away from that. Now, some of that is within the government's control, but much of it isn't in terms of the availability of materials and uh, and, and and so forth. Um, so I think that they have been a long way behind their targets and ambitions thus far on uh, on testing. But where that will really begin to have an effect is if that isn't fixed by the end of this month, it will prevent a relaxation of 
the restrictions. And you see this relaxation beginning to be rolled out across Europe tentatively. And in some cases, it would probably be reversed. Uh, you know, it would probably be a case of two steps forward, one step back. But that is the phase that many countries are beginning to enter now. And even in the UK, where, as Naomi says, they're on, a, you know, they're on nearly a thousand deaths a day, which was the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of level that was taking place in Italy and uh, a couple of weeks back and was reported almost as the end of days uh, in the UK media. Now there seems to be very strange acceptance of this level of uh, of deaths, strange to my mind, uh, at least. But even in the UK, they're talking about relaxing the uh, the restrictions. So I think by the time you get to the end of this month, um, you know, I think, you know, there will be very much uh, public impatience, assuming that the numbers continue to improve as they have done in recent weeks. There will be public impatience to get the restrictions lifted insofar as is uh, is possible. And if at that stage the government still does not have the testing and tracing capabilities in place, um, then I think you will ru- see them running into very significant criticism. Naomi, where you are, you're not very far from Germany, which I think is broadly seen as the European country that has dealt best with this with this crisis so far. Is there much of a difference, say, in relation to testing, for example, with what's happening in the Netherlands vis-a-vis what's happening in Germany? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Germany has been testing enormously. It just has big capacities. It's almost incredible. The number of things like ICU beds that they have and ventilators that they have is it's like many times over what other Europe, uh, EU countries have. It's, it's quite incredible. Whereas in the Netherlands had this real crunch with testing. They had very limited capacity, which um, was driven partly by a lack of a particular reagent. A lot of Dutch labs were dependent on the Roche Pharmaceutical Company of Switzerland for a reagent, which it wasn't in a position to deliver for whatever reason. And it took some time for it to release its recipe publicly. Um, so uh, testing has never been at a very high level. Um, I, off the top of my head, something in the range of about 1,500 a day, I think, was the average the last time I checked, but that might be slightly out of date. Um, and the, the authorities also sort of argued that testing, they didn't really want to increase testing. Like, you know, there was this idea that uh, testing was just to satisfy people's curiosity, but it wasn't that useful for science, which isn't really what we have learned from the best practice of countries like South Korea and so on, where they managed to really hunt down the virus and isolate it in the cases where they found it. So, yeah, there's the, the testing is certainly limited in the Netherlands. The the national different national reviews and inquiries of all these processes across the world when we come to that and we start looking back on it are really going to be absolutely fascinating. But to broaden the picture a little bit, you and your capacity as Europe correspondent have been covering what have been some extremely fraught EU negotiations between finance ministers about how to support com- uh, countries in their in their battles against uh, coronavirus and really some of the most spiky, most uh, aggressive exchanges between member states that we've seen in a long, long time, including between the Netherlands and Italy. Yeah, that's right. So what happened this week was the Eurogroup, the 19 finance ministers of the countries that use the euro, met and tried to come up with a plan about supporting economies because, after all, the IMF has warned that the economic fallout of the pandemic could cause 
the biggest downturn that we've seen since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, and that's bad news for everyone, obviously, but it's particularly risky for countries like Italy, which was already struggling to see economic growth. It's basically been stagnant for about two decades. Um, so they came together on Tuesday. They ended up negotiating over video conference all night into Wednesday morning and couldn't agree anything. So there was supposed to be a press conference on Tuesday morning that it was put back until Wednesday. And then they said, well, we're just going to talk again on Thursday and so on. It was repeatedly delayed. And the difficulty was there were two poles of opinion which are represented by the Netherlands and Italy. They're like the figureheads of two kind of cabals. Um, um, the Netherlands are the frugal ones that don't want to issue joint debt. So they don't want to take any joint uh, responsibility for debt. Um, and also, they if, if anyone takes emergency loans for spending, the Netherlands is keen that they should that should be attached to conditions to basically balance the books, just like back in the days of the Eurozone crisis with the bailouts then. Um, whereas Italy um, has a very different approach. Uh, Ireland is, is on Italy's side in this case, along with uh, Spain, France, Portugal and other countries. Uh, they want the issuance of what are called euro bonds, which are these joint is a, the uh, issuing joint debt that would share the risk across the eurozone and bring down borrowing costs uh, which would really help countries like Italy where they're always at risk of their the price they pay to borrow becoming so big that they end up in like a debt spiral they can never get out of um, and also it's been promoted in the past um, as a way of fixing one of the structural flaws in the euro which is that it ties together these really different eco um, economies without having the shared power or the kind of consensus to fix the imbalances that that creates. Um, so joint debt is sometimes seen as a way of, of kind of fixing one of those problems. Um, but yeah, they failed to get that. So what happened is that the Netherlands um, is totally against Eurobonds, not just the Netherlands, also Germany, Finland and Austria. Um, so that didn't fly. And the other thing that the Netherlands blocked was um, they were very insistent on this this conditionality issue, which is, you know, if you get emergency loans, you have to impose reforms. Reforms are known to people who don't like them as austerity. Um, so in the end, they did come to an agreement. And it's that you can get loans from the EU's bailout fund, which is the ESM, um, without the usual conditions about imposing reforms for health spending related to this particular pandemic, but not for other things. The language is deliberately vague, so we don't really know what this means and some of the detail needs to be figured out still. And it's vague so that both the Netherlands and Italy can declare a victory. And they have done. <laughs> but if you actually, I mean, my own personal analysis of it is that the Netherlands has clearly won here. Italy didn't get anything that it wanted whereas the Netherlands did get conditionality um, and got a distinction between types of lending, between healthcare and general economic stimulus. And it's not going to be difficult for The Hague to sell this domestically, whereas Italy is facing an absolute nightmare selling this deal domestically. Um, part of the reason is because the ESM, the bailout fund, is quite prominent in the deal. And just the initials, ESM in Italy, which is MES in Italy, are like a bogeyman. It's a bit like the Troika in Ireland. It just has really, really negative connotations of surrendering financial sovereignty and misery and cuts and so on. And one of the 
parties that's in government, the Five Star Movement, has actually kind of railed against the ESM for years as a bogeyman. And now they've, you know, their government has agreed to a deal in which the ESM is, a pro- is kind of a prominent part of. Um, so if you look at the Italian press, even today, there's a misapprehension that what Italy has done is already agreed to impose austerity, you know, which isn't true, but that's kind of how it's being seen and how it's being spun by opponents to the government. So the fear is that in the long run, this helps Eurosceptics in Italy and it just doesn't bode well for the future of the Eurozone. And there's an awful lot in that path. We might just try to touch on a couple of the elements. I mean, one is that um, Naomi referred to the fact that Ireland was in this notional alliance of the, the Hansa countries, as they were called, including the Netherlands and Baltic states, some of the Scandinavian countries, um, because of a supposed commitment to, I suppose, more um, economically liberal policies and so on. But when push came to shove, Ireland saw that its own interest was um, with the countries, mostly the countries of the south in the EU, didn't it? Yeah, Ireland has been, I suppose, on a search for allies, post-Brexit allies in the EU. And for the last two and a half years or so, Pascal Donoghue principally, but uh, but also Simon Coveney and Leo Varadkar have been cozying up to the Baltic countries, to the Hanseatic countries. Uh, interestingly, when this crisis hit, uh, Ireland sided with the Mediterranean countries and was one of the signatories this letter calling for joint uh, for calling for joint debt instruments which of course is a I mean Naomi has has you know brilliantly sketched out the divisions of recent days in the paper I, I suppose this division is a much older one than that and goes to the very heart of of the different views of what the uh, of what the European Union should do and the responsibilities it has towards its members as well as its members to it and you know seems to me a kind of another another fudge really reached this week you know gives holds out the promise of help for Italy but doesn't cross the rubicon of joint debt instruments and you know you would wonder I think how long Europe can continue to uh, to fudge questions like this because I think if if people don't see that the EU is to help in instances such as this they won't see any purpose for it at all and if they see no purpose for it they will vote for people who echo those views. And I suppose the shorthand for that is the election of, or the, you know, the next French presidential election and the candidacy of Marine Le Pen. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it it, it, it seems to me that that is, that's, that's the moment at which the EU will face its kind of destiny full in the face. And... If there isn't a perception amongst ordinary voters that the EU works for them in in in, in crises like this, um, uh, then I think it's pretty clear which way it's, it's happening. You know, 
Yeah, because Naomi, I mean, you wrote what I characterise as quite an apocalyptic piece about a day before this 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 fudge, this agreement was finally reached about the level of dissension uh, and uh, the, the level of lack of agreement. And in a way, all this goes back, doesn't it? It goes go, goes back through the crash and the crises, which that uh, which that cause, but right back to the foundation of the euro. And many people think, I believe myself with some justification, that at the heart of it is a kind of an original sin that uh, a system of monetary union was set up without any fiscal union and that sooner or later that's going to have to be addressed or it's just not going to work. Yeah, what happened over the, the breakdown over the last few days was the result of basically it was the wounds of old crises that haven't properly healed, I suppose. Um, and you could see a lot of unresolved beef from the Eurozone crisis. Um, just like I was talking about the ESM, you know, <laughs> in Italy. And the the Dutch position is also an unrehearsal of that that old position as well. I, th- I think the, the sense of well, that the apocalyptic tone of my piece, I think, was born out of the mood that morning after the all-night video conference had broken down. I'm, I'm sure an all-night video conference is enough to put anybody in a bad mood, but really the acrimony was great. Um, there was actually a feeling of disgust kind of towards the way the Dutch had behaved, like they just had no empathy at all. Um, like it was totally inappropriate for them to be insisting on uh, think you know people balancing their budgets in the face of this public health crisis, this pandemic. You know that it was just inappropriate. It wasn't it wasn't a debt crisis like the one before. It's more like a natural disaster. So there was this sort of deep alienation. Um, and yeah, what I heard from the Irish side is that really they didn't see their home in the Hansa Group anymore, and that. Um, that might have been temporary were it not for this extremely hard line of the Dutch. Um, And so this debate is going to continue. The deal says that there might be some kind of recovery fund that needs to be discussed by national leaders. So it basically kicks the can down the road and allows Italy to say that the idea of Eurobonds lives to fight another day. Um, So that basically means that this big dividing line um, is going to continue and Ireland's going to continue to be on the side of the Mediterranean countries. So for the time being, you know, it is estranged from that Hansa group, although, you know, it still does have some positions in common, particularly on things like taxation. So so what's what seemed to happen to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that what, what very often happens in, in the EU is that the big boys, the French and the Germans, finally came in and knocked some heads together and got some kind of a deal that got us through this for the next few weeks anyway. But w- w- listening to you talk there, to what extent, if at all, is the Hanseatic Countries League and the Netherlands in particular a sort of a proxy for what we traditionally thought of as the German position on these things, certainly back during the last crisis, the position of, of Wolfgang Schauble and the, the CDU in Germany, which was, as you laid out, that um, reforms, which is a you know a synonym for austerity, would have to accompany any uh, any any financial aid. Yeah. So the, the Fr- France and Germany did have a really important role in forging a compromise. They see that this kind of acrimony is very toxic to the sense of, I suppose, being in it together, that's really important um, for people to, to see, you know, for the continuance of the EU. 
Um, so yeah, they waded in and knocked heads together, as as you say. Um, but the the position of Germany is somewhat nuanced. Um, it isn't it isn't the advocate of the so-called moral hazard argument in this instance. It doesn't think that it's a good time to rush into shared debt obligations, but more from the point of view that this is sort of like it's a bit unwise to rush into a big what would be a big step in integration in a time of crisis you know and that it could kind of end badly that such a step would need you know to be done in a sort of calm and planned manner rather than in reaction to it to a major crisis um um so it's it, its position is is somewhat different um from my understanding is that the the germans weren't using the netherlands as some kind of front for their real position although of course it is it is convenient for the conservative strand of german opinion um to have advocates like that um but what you can see in, in is that in germany opinion has really shifted this this crisis is seen as very different from the debt crisis it's not seen as a crisis of country's own making you know it's not it's not seen as italy's fault that it's been it had to shut down its economy um a G8 economy essentially you know to to save its citizens and also to curb um its spread to the rest of the world so in this case Italy kind of took a hit for everyone else um and i think that engenders more sympathy um than perhaps the the debt crisis of the last decade it's also the case isn't it Pat, uh, right across europe including i think very much in ireland too is that Austerity won't wash this time. When we start looking at, start putting the pieces back together again, whether it be next year or hopefully maybe a bit sooner than that, the idea of significant cuts in services, health, education and so on is really not going to politically fly, is it? Well, no, but there are certain, you're right, yes, it's good, can't, can't politically fly, but there are certain inevitabilities which would present themselves in terms of the management of the public finances after this crisis. I was amazed that the overrider, Michal Martin, came out and said, whatever the next government does, there certainly will be no, there'll never be a return to uh, austerity. But there's two sets of costs for this crisis. I've written about this in a column for, uh, for tomorrow's paper. There's a uh, there's the upfront costs of, of of the pandemic, which is, of course, much higher healthcare costs, the social welfare costs, the tax, the costs in taxes foregone, and uh, and so forth. They would be astronomical, but they're in essence one-off costs. And if necessary, though the government's current advice I'm given to understand is that the NTMA, which manages fundraising and debt for uh, the government, says that, you know, we can raise whatever we need to on the open markets and being able to do so and being seen to be able to do so is a message of confidence uh, that will sort of you know, reinforce that confidence in the markets. So, uh, so astronomical though they may be, the costs of dealing with that upfront cost of the crisis will, um, I, I, I think, is something that the state can get over. There's also the potential of further 
uh, European instruments which could perhaps park the once-off debt. There has been some uh, talk about that, particularly if your ECB is buying large amounts of government bonds and so forth. The second type of cost associated with the crisis is the recurring cost. It seems to me one of the things that this crisis will do is that it will leave us with the uh, requirement for a much larger state. So I think that there will be, you know, be a bigger health service. I think one of the demands of citizens will be for a health service that works in a normal case of events and is prepared for, you know, uh, outbreaks like this uh, in in the future. And neither of those things were characteristics of the health service before the crisis. So uh, I think there will obviously be a much more significant recurring, at least for a period, social welfare costs. And there is significant costs of state intervention in markets and so forth and supporting employment that will go on for at least a period of time and uh, and perhaps a significant period of time. So you will have a much more expensive state. Now that state will have to pay for itself. It can't do that by continuing to borrow indefinitely. It can only do that by reducing costs elsewhere or by increasing its revenues. Now whether you call that austerity or you call it something else, uh, I'm not sure really matters, but it might amount to the same thing. There will be tax increases. Now, of course, there are political choices on how that extra revenue is raised, on what sections of society generally are, whether it should be in a more targeted way. But that is, those are the choices that will inevitably face the next government. And no matter how much people don't like the idea of austerity, uh, I think those realities won't go away. Interesting. Um, my reading, perhaps wrongly, of austerity, which is a word which is more more used by critics on the left than critics on the, on, on the right, is something which cuts services, cuts health services, cuts education. Um, but uh, the idea of austerity as being located in uh, just higher taxes uh, is not something I considered. Um, so is that a new kind of austerity, Pat? It, not that taxes didn't go up during the last bout. I think I think you'll find that if there were general tax increases. So the mo- the biggest tax increase of our lifetime was the universal social charge. I think that was a key component of what people regarded as austerity, not just the cuts in government spending, accounted for a significantly smaller part of the adjustment crisis. In an awful lot of areas, government spending wasn't so much cut in terms of the universal budgets in particular departments, but merely held at uh, uh, at at the same level. So you didn't have the annual increases that it had uh, that had previously been the case. Now, of course, it was cuts to services and cuts to budgets in lots of areas, but the impact on lots of people's lives was most acute through the imposition of the USC. So if you have a generalised tax increase, you know, an increase in the USC, a wider application of the USC, a new corona tax, whatever you call it, the goal being to increase revenues for the next uh, for the next government to close the gap between outgoings and incomings. Um, yeah, good luck with telling people that isn't austerity. Uh, Naomi, a last question to you, because I've got to ask Pat then a little bit about government formation, which is the uh, 
the dog that keeps barking in the night. But um, those sort of debates, which are definitely starting in Ireland and the United States and in the United Kingdom, we don't, because of the language barrier, hear so much about them in Europe. Are there similar debates about a, you know, a, a shift in focus of the role of the state after, after all this thing is over? It's a really interesting question. Um, I, haven't, I haven't seen one that I could point to distinctively. But I think something that's really interesting is that um, this crisis more broadly has has exposed the deep differences in public opinion between different EU states and the different expectations about what the EU should be. So in the Mediterranean states, there's the, the disappointment with the EU tends to come from a feeling that it hasn't done enough, like it hasn't supported, been supportive enough and um, and hasn't come through. So there's this expectation of greater social support from the EU. And disappointment with the EU in other countries like the Netherlands is re- is almost diametrically opposite. It's like it costs us too much, you know, they take Dutch taxpayers' money and so on. Um, and it just makes agreement so difficult because if you look at if you look at something like the Dutch position that I've been talking about, it's backed by a near um, unanimous domestic political consensus. There is no domestic downside to the Dutch government's position. Um, so it's difficult to see the way out of that. Um, and I think we it will be it will be very interesting to see what comes next. I, at least the, the, now the deal, the supporters of the deal that have been reached say that at least this gets us over in the next few weeks. So a states that are really in trouble can now borrow. Um, if they need to, they can. They have access to emergency funds, and then talks will continue, and perhaps there'll be something else down the line. Um, but this, my my impression is over this week is that the divergences in public opinion and the ways in which different pu- publics find fault with the EU are so different um, that it's just it's just so difficult to see how the problems of the EU can be resolved with anything else but a continued series of crises that force the issue rather than a plan. Naomi, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for joining us. All right, talk soon. So Pat, listen to Naomi there. One of the things that strikes me, one of the things that's been very apparent, I think, over the last few weeks is that despite the uh, the worst prognostications of the Brexiteers across the water, uh, within the European Union, uh, the nation state is still the strongest political unit, political entity, and national governments are the ones which have performed, whether it be well or badly, they're the ones who've been taking the lead and in fact have been exerting an incredible amount of power, probably the great, the single most powerful execution of sovereignty that we've seen since since sort of wartime economies. Yeah, uh, one of the hallmarks of the crisis is how weak the EU has been in it. And, you know, so, and even, you know, this the, the divisions and the subsequent deal that Naomi uh, writes about in recent days, that was an example of member state governments looking for the EU to do something to help them rather than the EU suggesting things and taking the, initi- the initiative uh, in dealing with the crisis. Now, partly that's because public health is not an EU competence uh, un- uh, under the treaties, but to be honest, it's it's of a piece with the 
sort of balance of power in the EU since the early 2000s after the Nice Treaty, which is where most the important power in the EU is on the uh, on the EU Council, on the, the group of member state governments and their elected leaders. I mean, in the era before that, a more integrative era in the history of the EU, the Com- European Commission under people like Jacques Delors and so forth had much greater power and ran a much more kind of forward moving uh, agenda but that era that era has passed and uh, and t- the dominant power is now the member state governments and you see that not just when they act together on the uh, on the council but in the individual power of member states like this deal from what i can gather this morning was reached last night because of the intervention of the french and uh, and German leaders. And I think that's just where the balance of power lies in the EU at the moment. So the the whole British, you referenced the Brexiteers, you re- the whole British idea about, you know, the supranational power of the Commission uh, threatening the independence of, uh, of, of, of member state countries was really a critique that was grounded in a previous reality of the uh, of the European Union, I think. So, Pat, tell us, when are we going to have an actual government? Ah. <laughs> OK, so the state of play at the moment uh, is the Fianna Fáil Fianna Gael negotiators meeting at the moment. I, I don't know if they've uh, emerged from that meeting since uh, we started recording this podcast, but certainly according to people that I spoke to before that meeting... They hoped to agree a statement of or a series of statements of principle aims which would they hope will govern the next administration. I think there's 10 or 12 or so of those principles, aims and objectives. They will circulate those to the smaller parties, Greens, Social Democrats and the the Labour Party. Uh, in the hope that it will entice one of the smaller parties to join talks on government formation. Uh, I think they will circulate that probably not this weekend. We had hoped we might see it this week. Uh, We'd hoped we might see it then this weekend. Uh, Subject to being proved wrong over the coming hours, I'm not sure that's going to happen now. I think there is a fear in the parties that if that was put out this weekend, it it would be pulled apart over the weekend before they had a chance to actually present it to the leaders of the small parties. So I think the plan going into this meeting of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael is that they would agree the set of principles, aims and objectives. They would present it to the smaller parties next week. There would be a meeting between a Taoiseach and Michal Martin and the leaders of the smaller parties whether that will persuade the smaller parties in, I'm very sceptical uh, about. I think that if there is to be a government formed in the coming weeks, I think it's not likely until until May, but if it is to be formed in, uh, at, at that stage, it will be a, a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael government supported by independence. I think that is the most likely outcome at this stage. And is there any possibility of some kind of external confidence supply 
thing to buttress that maybe but we've heard noises about that 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 might be a possibility from the Labour Party for example perhaps for six months or 12 months or something I think that possibility will be explored uh, with the Labour Party I think it's fairly clear now that despite hopes in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael that the election of Alan Kelly to the leadership of the Labour Party last weekend would change the party's stance on entering a coalition that's unlikely to be borne out but I think they will certainly talk to the Labour Party about the possibility of supporting the government or facilitating the government or maybe being some sort of a parliamentary backstop to the government in case of it losing votes or the desertion of some of its bite into the diver- desertion of some of its independent supporters. I think those discussions will take place where they go. It's impossible to say at the moment. And I think Labour would certainly be wary of a formal arrangement that would commit it to supporting Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael government from outside the experience of that, uh, of Fianna Fáil recently, certainly electorally, has not been a, a, happy, a happy one. And I suppose one could remark in passing that it seems that Labour's unwillingness to take part in government is entirely drawn from its electoral experience after it, it, uh, it, it took part in the 2011-2016 uh, government. So the short answer to that, that's a long answer to your question, Hugh. The short answer is I, I think it is likely that that government, by the time we get to May, I think that government will probably be inevitably comprised of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, supported by the independents, though it's unlikely to take office until that time. Well, we'll we'll leave it with that. Thanks to to Pat and Naomi and also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Do remember that if you like what we do, the best way to support this podcast and all of our journalism here at the Irish Times is to go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And remember, have a listen to our sister podcast, Confronting Coronavirus, in our existing Worldview podcast feed. Like all of our podcasts, that is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and all the other major platforms and also at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.